brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Yanis Varoufakis about his book, Techno-Feudalism, What Killed Capitalism? Yanis is, of course, the former finance minister of Greece and co-founder of the international grassroots movement DM25, as well as a professor of economics at the University of Athens. This has been called his boldest and most far-reaching book yet, And in it, he argues that capitalism is dead and a new economic era has begun. The Times and The Guardian, both of it pegged as one of the publishing highlights of 2023. And Irvin Welsh, no less, called it a dark, scary, exciting song of our age. I definitely think it's a must read. And Yanis, I'm thrilled to get to talk to you about it today. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for having me. What effect did it have on you as a writer, the fact that as you wrote it, you thought of your father sitting in front of you. I'm an economist, which means that I'm handicapped by a language designed to keep everyone in the dark about things that that they know, because that's what we do as economists. We phrase in a language that nobody understands everything that people do comprehend or are capable of comprehending. So in order to escape my economic predisposition, it's always important to address books that I am writing for the public, the audience, to people who are close to me. So once upon a time, I wrote a book about capitalism, which I addressed to my daughter. It's without asking for permission. Talking to my daughter without asking permission, yeah. something yeah. I've been paying for since then. <laughs> so now that I want to go beyond that and to argue this very audacious and controversial uh, case that uh, capitalism has already been replaced by something far worse, which I call techno-feudalism, I immediately thought that I better narrate it again as a long letter to somebody near and dear to me. And immediately the thought came that I should do it. I should address my dad because it was my father who, after all, at a ridiculously young age, introduced me both to technological change, the beauty of technology, and the horror of technology, this dialectical opposition between the two, and to capitalism. At a very young age, he introduced me to the notion of capitalism. So who else was I going to address it other than him? And given that he was having a very good death at the age of 95, 96 at the time, I started writing almost immediately after his funeral. Tell us about a poem by Hesiod, at which, of course... What it says in that poem is instrumental, really, to what this book is about. It was introduced to me by my father, who was absolutely madly in love with iron. He thought that iron was the most spectacular metal, the most spectacular substance on this planet, because if you heat it up and then you dip it in water, you baptize it, then it turns into something completely different. The only metal that does that, it doesn't go back to where it was, it becomes steel metamorphosizes. So the Iron Age was, my father told me, and he convinced me about that from the age of six, the transition from prehistory to history, if you think about it, from when we went from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, history sped up. Instead of being counted in millennia, it was counted in you know decades. 
And then, of course, with uh, the Industrial Revolution and Bessemer's great uh, advancement in steel technology, history was counted in the months. Yes, as soon as it became cheaper to produce. Indeed. So the Iron Age was presented to me by my dad as the beginning of civilization and its discontents, of course, all the wonderful things we've created and all the horrors that followed it. And he used Hesiod and the lamentation in that poem that you mentioned by Hesiod. He calls the the people of the Iron Age the fifth age, the fifth generation. And he says, I'm so unlucky to have been part of this generation because this generation, despite all the progress that iron has brought us, means that human beings will never be able to rest at night or to prosper during the day. Evil will always triumph. So it is essentially another variety of the anxiety that we all feel every time we come across a technological advancement, which is simultaneously a triumph of the human spirit and a great threat. Take artificial intelligence today. Everybody talks about AI. In terms that are both celebratory, as we speak, AI technologies designing fantastic antibiotics, killing superbugs that kill so many thousands of people. But at the same time, we're extremely worried that they are taking over our minds and taking over our societies and pushing us out of a job and so on. So Hesiod, you know, all those thousands of years ago, put in beautiful poetry this conundrum that we face every time we look at a technological change. Hmm. Bitter sorrows will be left for us mortals and there will be no help against evil. Indeed. That's what he wrote. Talking of anxiety, Yanis, did you wrestle with the idea that you're not a digital native? You, like me, are digital tourists. We were born at a time when there wasn't Mm. this technology. Therefore, perhaps there is a misunderstanding. And for those people like of your daughter's age and my children's age, who are teenagers now, they're digital natives, so they don't have the anxieties that you have because you weren't born into it. No, I didn't struggle with that party. I have lots of other anxieties, but not this one. And my daughter was instrumental in that. My daughter was born in 2004, so she is a digital native. Uh, because we were separated by many oceans and continents, she lived in Australia and I lived in Europe. And the reason I mention that is because our relationship was a digital one. So I'm one of the first users of Skype. I used to read bedtime stories to her over Skype in 2005. (laughs) And she had a a screen pinned on top of her cot, her bed, in which I appeared for a couple of hours every night. So we, you know, we had that relationship. And nevertheless, even though she is completely au fait with technologies and, you know, digital is everything for her. It's her world, the world that she grew up in. At the age of 13... She developed a new Luddite tendency all of her own. She stopped listening to Spotify. She stopped watching Netflix of her own accord because she believed in the physicality of music. So she went back to, she traveled to vinyl and to CDs. And she, to this day, she demands that she goes into bookshops and buy books and doesn't read them online. So she helped me feel confident that straddling the analog and the digital worlds was a good place from which to pass judgment on what's going on and therefore on the makings of techno-feudalism. What was it that led to her rejecting the digital world that my 15-year-old and my 14-year-old 
seem to be very comfortable in. She hasn't rejected it. She's still on Instagram. She watches TikTok. She does all that stuff. And she did it completely of her own. I have no idea what got into her. Hmm. But she loves music and she loves films. And she believes that the immediate availability of a film, of a piece of music on your phone, on your laptop, is impeding the proper appreciation of it. I'm sure she doesn't know about Adorno, but she's developed a kind of Adorno-like aversion to canned things that are digitally available. So she likes live music, she likes going to the movies, and she appreciates them a lot more as a result, while not being a Luddite in the sense that she's not switched off her phone, her laptop and all that. What effect did it have on your father spending several years in prison camps? And then by association, what effect do you think that had on you? It changed him. It clearly changed him. You know, you know, I've met and I'm sure you have met people whose parents, whose fathers in particular, went through the war, the Second World War, the Great War before that, a generation earlier. It's impossible to run the hypothetical, what would these people have been like without those experiences? It's clear that it left a significant mark on them. My father was a very positive person, so he never dwelled on the negatives, even though it did that experience, especially being tortured, left uh, an indelible negative mark on him. But his focus was on all the positive things. He said to me that it was a great university because in the same tent on a barren island at the concentration camp, that Macaronis was Long Island, it means in Greek, where he was uh, for years, he was cooped up in the same tent with Greece's leading poet, Yanis Ritsos, not only famous, but wonderful poet. One of her best theater actors, you know, the John Gilgood of Greece, Manos Katrakis, journalists, philosophers. Uh, he himself spent his time when he was not being tortured or uh, too hungry to be able to concentrate, focusing on physics and mathematics as a way of, like Primo Levi in the concentration camp, mm -hmm. of finding some truth that is beyond dispute to latch onto. So he essentially became an intellectual, a true intellectual in that concentration camp, something that helped him throughout his life. And at the same time, he learned to fear the Nazi we all have in us, as he used to put it, because he saw the authoritarianism amongst his own comrades. He said to me once, and that has never left me, this has been a great guide, a moral and political guide in my life. He said, Yanis, look, even in there, I knew that if our side had won, I would probably be the same prison with different guards, referring to the authoritarianism of the Communist Party. So, yeah, we of the left have to be very self-critical. And my dad's self-criticism as a communist and criticism of the left and the authoritarian tendencies of us left-wingers not only did it mark his life, he was a very mild and truly liberal, small L liberal man, but it has also influenced me. I sense quite easily how much you loved your father and how much in awe you were of him and how passionate he was about learning. What about the anger that you would feel towards a state that did what they did to your father? How do you process that? I didn't feel anger, because he didn't. Uh, but you can feel it on his behalf without him feeling it. He's your father. They tortured him. Yes, but you know what? If you put all your energies into developing a deep understanding of the circumstances 
that led to these events and to the events that I experienced in the 1970s uh, with other members of my family, like my mother's brother who was being tortured and who was dragged through court-martial and so on. You learn to focus out of the individuals. So, for instance, let me be more specific in my answer. My father described to me the makings of a torturer. He talked to me about the way in which the people who tortured him had themselves been tortured. Nobody's born a torturer. Usually, How old were you when he explained this to you? Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. We, you know, we we were forced by circumstances to grow up very, 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 very early back then. Because think about it, you know, it was in on the twenty first of April, nineteen sixty seven. I was six when at four o'clock in the morning the secret police broke down the door and abducted him, and for two or three weeks he disappeared. He was in some football stadium, like in 1973, uh, Pinochet uh, shoved uh, leftists into football stadium. I mean, that's what these fascists did. So, you know, when, when this happens in your own household, you can't escape growing up very quickly. <laughs> so for us, humanism meant to understand, not, not to excuse, not to excuse, but to understand the makings of a fascist. Wow. I mean, that is as incredible an example of empathy than I've ever heard. You see, this is why um, to this day, even though we of the left are history's losers, pathetic losers at that, and we also have created the gulag in which we shoved our own comrades in there. That's why I'm still a lefty because, you know, this is, this is a solace I find. I mean, there's a fantastic passage in one of Marx's writings in which he explains the torment of capitalists their anxieties, their suffering, because they know what they're doing to the proletarians, to the proletarians who work for them. They know that they're squeezing the living daylights out of them, but they have no alternative because competition with other capitalists forces them to do this because if they don't do that, they know they will end up bankrupt and end up being proletarians. So they can't sleep at night. That's a passage in Marx. That's empathy for you. Explain to me, Yanis, how profit is the paying for time, but actually getting passion without paying for it. The way that I understood it from a pretty young age, and I tried to explain in this book, I mean, it actually came from my mum. Uh, my mother was a remarkable woman, just as remarkable as my father, maybe more so. And I remember she came back from her place of work. She worked, she was a chemist, and she worked on the factory floor making fertilizers. Very harsh work, but as a scientist. Once she said something that stuck with me and remains in my head when you're asking me this question, she said, these people are paying for my time, but they're not paying for my work or for my contribution. So this duality, you know, when you're buying potatoes, you're buying potatoes, that's it. The moment you strike a deal with the potato seller at the marketplace, that's it. There's nothing else to say about that. Then you eat your potatoes. But when you're an employer and you buy somebody's labor, what exactly are you buying? You're paying for their time, but you don't care about their time. You want their work, but that you can't buy. You can only buy their time so that they exit the marketplace and they enter your shop, your factory, your place of work. And at that moment, you have social relationship in which you try to cajole them as an employer 
to produce the work that you can't pay for. <laughs> you know, the, what I call experiential labor, yes. which cannot be paid for. You can do this by being nice to them, make them feel guilty if they're not working hard, or by strapping, as it happens in factories today, a digital device on the wrist by which you monitor their every move and the device starts beeping if they're not moving fast enough. So you've got this dual nature of labor. You pay for something that you don't care for. Time. Time. To get something you cannot pay for. And to enter into this kind of tug of war with the laborer whose time you have hired or purchased. The more work you can get out of them, which is unpaid for, out of the hours you have paid for, the greater the value of the commodities that you then sell at the marketplace as an entrepreneur. There is no reason why the value of the commodities, which are a function of how much experiential labor has gone into it, which you have not paid for, there is no reason why that value should be the same as the market value of the time that you've purchased. Indeed, if it is not greater, then you go bankrupt. Right. And the difference, of course, is surplus value. That's what Karl Marx's analysis bequeathed me. I don't know about anybody else. And that surplus value then becomes a number of things. It becomes a rent that the capitalist pays to the landlord for the space that he occupies or she occupies. It becomes interest paid back to the banker who has lent the capitalist the money to employ factors of production. The rest becomes profit. My point about techno-feudalism is that increasingly most of those profits are siphoned off by the Jeff Bezos's and what I call the techno-feudal lords or the cloudalists, the owners of cloud capital, that the capitalist now needs in order to sell his or her stuff through to you. Your father would come home from work and he would be able to ring-fence time mm -hmm. that was meant for him, his family, and his pursuits. Mm -hmm. You contest in this book that now that ring-fencing has all but disappeared. Explain why. Well, we all know why it has, because people bring work with them wherever they go. They go to a cafeteria. Unless the French put it into law that you can't check emails after a certain time. Or you well, that is a very time. good law. But even that law does not change the fact that when in your spare time you tweet, you upload a video on TikTok, you write a review, you create a profile, a social media profile, which then, if you are being interviewed for a job, the interviewer knows and has gone through this. And because you know that it will happen, then even in your leisure time, everything you do on social media, subconsciously, mostly, you do with a view to curate your CV, to curate your personality, to curate who you are in a manner which deep down in your soul, you're trying to make consistent with that which an employer or a client or somebody in the grand scheme of the great marketplace of human uh, endeavor out there is going to think of as attractive for you. So this ring fencing goes. Suddenly, your capacity to do things for yourself, autonomously, not with a view to increasing your net worth, goes. But also, alongside increasing your net worth, developing your brand. That's exactly the same thing. Developing your brand is to increase your net worth. Right. We are brands now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
But you've been a brand for some time. As soon as you publish a book, even once you become Greek finance minister, you're a brand. How comfortable are you with your own branding, or perhaps more appropriately, how in control are you of your own brand? Not in the slightest. Most people out there have a view of me which has not been curated by me, but it's been curated by toxic media. So, for instance, my greatest regret and source of pain at the moment, for instance, is that because of polarization on a number of topics, there are those who support the NATO line on Ukraine who consider me to be Putin's handmaiden. Then there are others on the left who consider me to be George Soros's man who's a NATO stooge, me. So I'm simultaneously a NATO stooge and a Putin handmaiden because this is what happens when you have polarization and your voice cannot be heard. Similarly, regarding a number of other issues recently, you know, I posted a photogram of myself with a friend who is a leading trans worker activist in Greece, Paola Revenotti, a mythical, legendary figure in the trans movement. And suddenly I was viciously attacked in the United States as homophobic because I, and this was seriously, this was what I was accused of, of posing next to woman face, as in blackface, an anti-trans stand. So we cannot control our brand. All we can do is remain true to our ideas, true to our views, and keep fighting. Keep fighting for, you know, <laughs> those out there who care about discovering what your true views are, whether they like them or not. Is saying the death of the liberal individual a provocation in order to issue a warning whereby you don't actually believe there's the death of the individual, but there is the threat of the death of the individual? Or do you genuinely believe there is the death of the individual? Oh, I genuinely believe it. Look, it is the death of the notion, the illusion of the liberal individual. Every student of economics, for instance, semester one, week one, economics department, Economics 101, what you're told is that the individual is a bundle of autonomous preferences. Your utility function captures your preferences, which are your own preferences. You made them, you created them, you're in control of them. And the rational individual is the one that maximizes his or her own utility, preference satisfaction index, subject to whatever constraints they have, how much money you have, where you can go, and so on and so forth. That's the liberal individual. The whole point about, you know, the liberal tradition, starting with Thomas Hobbes, was that the state is legitimate, our polity is legitimate, to the extent that it serves the interests of the person, of the individual. But for that to make sense, the individual must be self-determining, self-determined, and autonomous. Friedrich von Hayek, the, one of the greatest, and Adam Smith before that, but more recently Hayek, was the great advocate of markets. He did not advocate markets for the reasons why mainstream economists do, that you know, it's a good mechanism for finding the right price so that there's neither overproduction or underproduction. Hayek's libertarian view was that, I remember listening to him in a lecture he gave at the LSE. He said, you know, the other day I walked into a shop and I left with an item that I didn't know I wanted. If I didn't know I wanted, how could central planners, socialists who are replacing the market with socialist planning, know what society wants? I don't know what I want. 
only the market, my interaction with the market, allows me to develop my character and my preferences. This is a very powerful argument against socialism, right? But what I'm saying in this book is that the market is finished, gone, kaput. Because now you've got Alexa sitting on your desk. You train it to train you, to train it, to train you, to train it, to give you excellent recommendations about books. I mean, whenever Alexa or, or Netflix or Spotify recommend a book or a song, I actually like it because it knows me really very well. And this is not a market. This is a centrally planned algorithm. The Soviets would have loved to have it because this was exactly what socialist planning was trying to do, to replace with, um, the market with a centrally hierarchical machine that actually knows what people want and then gives orders to producers, produce that which people want. And this is what Hayek said you cannot do. You cannot replace the market. Well, Amazon has replaced it. And now Alexa not only recommends to me what book I should buy, what bicycle I should purchase, and it actually knows what I want, the preferences that it has inputted into my head or helped input into my head, but it actually sells it to me, bypassing the marketplace. You know, it arrives at your doorstep and you have exited the marketplace. So the libertarian defense of capitalism has been jettisoned by the same process that has replaced capitalism with what I call techno-feudalism. What about the impossibility of social democracy then? Well, social democracy is finished. <laughs> Absolutely and utterly finished. It's finished for two reasons. Firstly, because the social democrats sold their souls to the devil. Think of Tony Blair, you know, Shredder in Germany and so on. If you think of the greats of social democracy, Harold Wilson in this country, Bruno Kreisky in Austria, Willy Brandt in Germany, what did they do? How did they conceptualize their role? They thought of themselves as referees between organized labor and the captains of industry. The representatives of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, on the one hand, the Trade Union Council on the other, they would cut a deal, they would mediate some kind of social contract between them, whereby part of the surplus value of the industrialists would go to the state to fund universities, the NHS, and so on and so forth, and another part would go to the workers in the form of higher wages and better conditions. And they could do it. Today, how can you sit Jeff Bezos down on the one side of the table, and all the people who I call cloud proles or cloud serfs on the other side, what government can do that? Even if they want to do it, they cannot do it. That's one reason why social democracy is bunk. It's finished. The other reason is, of course, that with the shift of power, initially from industry to the financial sector, that happened in the 1990s, 2000s, with financialization, and then the shift from the financial sector to what I call cloud capital. It is absolutely impossible for government to have the kind of power which is necessary in order to affect a redistribution of income from the owners of cloud capital to the proletarians on the one hand, who are becoming increasingly precarious, that's why I call them cloud proles <laughs> in the book, and to all the people out there who contribute to cloud capital by posting videos on TikTok and so on and so forth, replenishing and multiplying the volume of cloud capital on behalf of Facebook and all these people and get not a penny for it. So what is the choice left to us? Because when you talk about the algorithm making those leaps and the algorithm becoming an agent in the mm -hmm. book, as you do, the agent knows us, mm -hmm. therefore it cuts the time down and gives us choices 
that actually parry with how we feel about the world and what we want to consume. Therefore, it's still a choice that we make. Of course. So that's freedom. Well, freedom will die only when the last human being dies. This is the silver lining. It's irrepressible. Even the happiest of moronic slaves, deep down in her or his soul, <laughs> has the capacity to rebel, the capacity to demand freedom. So that's the good news. The good news is also that the technologies which are bolstering and reinforcing the power of the owners of cloud capital, we can use against them. For instance, an organization which is global that I'm party to and part of and very proud to be that. Uh, we call it the Progressive International. Bernie Sanders and I started it in November of 2018. But now it has grown internationally. We have some like 200 million members, affiliated members, trade unions all over the place. Last year we started just to demonstrate what can be done in response to questions like yours. We started on every Black Friday, you know, that yes. ridiculous tradition in the United States of having a huge sale on Black Friday, sometime in December, I believe. We started a hashtag make Amazon pay campaign, which um, is a rolling strike, an international rolling strike in warehouses of Amazon that begins in Vietnam, moves to Bangladesh and India, then goes to Germany, then goes to New Jersey, where Chris Small started the union against Amazon, and then finally ends in Seattle, which is where the Amazon headquarters are. To organize that, you need to use their cloud capital. <laughs> you need to use their own methods, their own apps, their own infrastructure. Now, imagine if we managed to succeed to have an international day of not visiting Amazon.com that day as well, not just a strike of Amazon warehouse workers, but also a global mobilization not to visit Amazon.com for one day. It's not a great deal not to go into Amazon.com for one day. You know, If we were to manage to do that, that day would be a major shock for Jeff Bezos. It would hit him a lot more than any regulator can hit him because his share price would go down. If the markets find out that visitations to Amazon.com have fallen by 10%, 20%. Imagine a global movement that targets one such corporation after the other in order to create this sensation across the world, this again, to, to give people the sense that they can be powerful. They are no longer uh, supplicants. They are no longer vassals. But what of the developing world that aspire to be what you describe as supplicants, to aspire to have the access to goods and services at the flick of a switch that we do. Cloud capital is international. It's absolutely global. But there's a digital divide. No, there isn't. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. There absolutely is. Go to a village in Sri Lanka and you're telling me that they have the same access to technology that someone two miles from us here in London has. The divide on the cloud is much smaller than the divide when it comes to health, when it comes to education, when it comes to Still a divide. Capital. Of you course. just said there wasn't of one. Of course. But if you look at, for instance, the growth of cloud capital in Kenya, in Nigeria, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, it's absolutely astonishing. Did you know, I mean, I do mention this in the book, that three and a half million tiny little outlets called Varungs in Indonesia, you know, little corner stalls, not even shops, have all been taken over by an Amazon-like um, conglomerate, which is actually Indonesian. 
And they are digitizing this and turning those tiny little outlets into digital little thieves, including financial services. So this is not a book about what's happening in Europe and in the United States and Japan and China. This is a book about a global phenomenon, which unfortunately, and here's where we will agree, perpetuates the development of underdevelopment in countries like Indonesia, in countries like Kenya, because the spread of the cloud capital is disempowering the masses by bringing them into the cloud capital world as cloud serves. But not people who have an access to goods and services that they otherwise would not have had at a speed at which they would not have had. Well, access to goods and services is simply a matter of money. If you live in uh, Ghana, Smartphones are very cheap now. Yes. Most people have them. Are, yeah. So they have the apps. They have If they had money, they could buy everything that you and I can buy in, here in the West. So the, the income inequality is the problem. It's not a digital divide. A cloud capital has spread its uh, presence across the globe. So the question is this. How do we roll back traditional capitalist imperialism, which is gathering pace as a result of the spread of techno-feudalism? That is the big question. It's one of the big themes that we're discussing in the Progressive International. Unless these communities are empowered by being connected to movements in the United States, you know, workers' movements in the United States, like Chris Smalls, who started the campaign in New Jersey to unionize the Amazon workforce, unless the Indonesian equivalents find a way of connecting with people like Chris Smalls in New Jersey and people here in Britain, in other words, internationalism. This is an era in which internationalism is more necessary than ever. Because in the older terrestrial capital era, as opposed to cloud capital that is dominant in my view today, back then it was possible because social democracy was possible to have national solutions. Today, it is impossible for the people of Sri Lanka or the people of Indonesia to emancipate themselves from poverty, from underdevelopment, unless it is part of an internationalist movement. What is the distinction between an internationalist and a globalist movement? Ha. Well, it's all semantics, isn't it? But behind but the semantics... But globalism has of course. something at the heart of it that many people feel very uncomfortable about. And well, globalism, of course, of, <laughs> of course, has led to wage stagnation in America for yeah. two decades. Yeah, you see, the left started internationalism back in the 19th century. The idea of, you know, proletarians of the world unite, to put it very bluntly. What's globalization? Globalization was the internationalization of finance, the internationalization of trade. So I got this sensation so very vividly in my brain when I was standing at the border crossing, one of the border crossings between the United States and Mexico, that horrible fence that Donald Trump wants to turn into a wall. It is already horrid, uh, a horrid division that scars, uh, you, you know, North America. If you're standing there, you see the people on one side of the border, on the Mexican side, not being able to cross, and thousands of them sitting around trying to find ways and to imagine ways of crossing the border illegally. Meanwhile, huge trucks and train loads of stuff is moving in and out of the United States. So you have complete freedom of movement of commodities. You have, at the touch of a button, complete movement of money, of capital flows. It's only people who cannot move around. 
So globalization is the opposite of internationalism. Internationalism is about freedom of people to move around, of ideas to move around and so on, and capital controls, because capital controls are essential for civilized society. Because when capital can flee one country and go to another for speculative purposes, to create bubbles, then the bubbles burst and it flees out again, leaving nothing but smithereens behind it. Instead of having capital controls and freedom of movement of people, we have exactly the opposite. That is globalization. And that's why every internationalist must oppose globalization. We asked you to bring a few objects with us <laughs> to talk about figuratively, figuratively yes. on the Penguin podcast. I feel like the first object, the metal rod, mm -hmm. we may have covered very early on in our conversation, but please tell us about the significance of a metal rod and why it features in techno-feudalism at the beginning. This is how I begin telling the story of my relationship with technology through my dad, mediated through my father, because when I was very young, he brought these metal rods home and we experimented at a fireplace by heating them up and then dipping them into water and this was his way of demonstrating the superiority of iron and demonstrating the notion of, firstly, the transformation of matter, how matter can be transformed to a different quality, not a different quantity, and how that brought about the social transformation when we went from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. So for me, those metal rods encapsulate the idea of transformation, both of matter and of society. A model Stuka plane, that is your second object, Yanis. Why a model Stuka plane? <laughs> that will feature in my next book. It's not in this one. It's 1970, I'm nine. My mother takes me to visit her brother, my uncle, my favorite uncle, who was uh, imprisoned for participating in a resistance group against the fascist dictatorship that took over in Greece in 1967, I mentioned that before. He had made a model plane for me out of matchsticks and bits of carton. And he gave it to me as a present because he was my godfather and hadn't given me presents for a very long time during, due to those circumstances. I asked him, I think my mother, my mother told him off, why a Nazi plane? And he said, well, because the guards are Nazis and they will probably let you take it away. <laughs> very clever. Another object, an interesting one, especially because I don't know if it's a smartphone or not, but your mother's mobile phone. It wasn't a smartphone. Ah, it was one of those. those so old, it wasn't right? engaged in cloud capital. No, 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 no. But, you know, it's one of those things when somebody very close to you dies, what do you do with their everyday objects? Do you throw them away? Do you keep them? I kept her Nokia ancient by today's standards phone, and I've kept it on my desk. And when I look at it, I always wonder, should I have chucked it or should I have kept it? Is it giving me joy to look at it or does, does it give me sadness? And because it also reminds me that she never lived to see techno-feudalism. She died in 2008. And by that time, I hadn't developed that theory and I hadn't even seen it coming. So it connects somehow at the emotional and the intellectual level with me. And then again, probably purely on an emotional level, but you can tell me, Yanis, your fourth object is your grandmother's photo album. That is one of my very prized possessions. I never got to meet my grandmother. She died before I was born. She died of a broken heart as a result of my dad's incarceration in that concentration camp. 
But my grandmother must have been a very significant person. She lived most of her life, if not all her life, in Cairo, Egypt. She was of French descent, but she had married into a Greek family in Cairo, part of the British establishment. Her husband, my grandfather, was the director of Thomas Cook. She was an internationalist. She, it was the expat community. They were not internationalists. They ah. were colonials. They ah, treated the different. Arabs as, uh, you know, slaves, essentially. Wow. Subhuman, yeah. then, in that Except my grandmother. My grandmother was a suffragette and uh, a socialist, all completely on her own. I mean, there was no, nobody else uh, <laughs> joined uh, her in those sentiments. So she was a, a lone wolf, in a sense. She was a feminist who campaigned for the rights of Arab women. And she was the only expat European in Cairo as part of this bourgeoisie, that ruling class, that connected to the Arab community. And she insisted that my father learn Arabic, whereas all the other kids of that community, none of them learned Arabic. And through her, my father became essentially my own gateway to enlightenment, French enlightenment. And her language, first language was French, as was my dad's. So through my dad, she infiltrated my brain with, you know, Voltaire, with Madame Curie, the great chemist, uh, Nobel Prize winner, woman, French, was an idol. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of her in me. And this photo album is absolutely remarkable because you can see her handwriting in white ink against the black background. The photographs are stupendous very high quality photographs of excursions uh, down the Nile and the pyramids, photographs of everyday life in Alexandria and Cairo. And unfortunately, nobody is still alive to give me more information about it because you know my father is now gone. So I have to try to make it up <laughs> as I go along when I'm trying to piece together her life. You're talking about the grandmother on your father's side, mm -hmm. but do you feel that your mother felt that she had agency in her own life to make decisions that she was free to make? Absolutely. My mother was the most powerful person in my household, far more powerful than my dad. My dad was in awe of her. I didn't get my politician's dispositions from my dad. He didn't have any. He was intellectual, you know, he could never handle politics. My mother was um, a local government official. She was a deputy mayor in, in, in my town. She was um, more than an agent. She was a powerhouse. Uh, my next book begins with her because I have, uh, as you probably gathered, I haven't said much about her. No. But there's probably more of my mother in me than there is of my father. What strikes me as fantastic about that is that for so many women their own ideals and aspirations were squashed by the society that they grew up mm. in. How was it that your mother was able to resist the age that she grew up in? Well, firstly, she had it in her. My mother was the first woman to be admitted in the School of Chemistry at the University of Athens. She entered the amphitheater and there were 600 men and her. <laughs> this is extraordinary. And the professor, the first professor she encountered, essentially looked at her and said, what are you doing here? Why are you taking a man's place? That was her baptism of fire at the university. And she stuck it out. And, you know, she did well. There was an inherent strength, which came from her mother as well. But I have to say that the grandmother that I mentioned, my father's mother, mm. helped. 
even though she never met her, because she had instilled deep feminist ideals into my dad. I grew up in a household where my father washed the dishes, where there was absolutely no gender-based division of labor, where my father spent every morsel of his energy to support my mother's political career. <laughs> so, yes, I, I've been very lucky. Well, it's certainly not a leap to say that your father found in your mother a symbol of his own mother. Indeed. Yeah. He did, and he always said that. Yeah. He always said that. Your fifth object, Yanis, is a wedding ring. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this wedding ring. From a very young age, I was against marriage as an institution because I read my angles, uh, who described marriage as the first class conflict, the first class subjugation of women to men, the first social class, the first class war, especially the idea of the ring, which is a representation of a shackle which is also not a shackle for men, it's a shackle for women, patriarchy. You know, I had my grandmother, I had my mother, I had my angles. I was completely against all that. I've been married twice. The first one was to the mother of my daughter. That marriage clearly didn't turn out very well because it ended in divorce. Uh, probably my fault, no blaming here. When I met Danai, my partner, and the great love of my life, I have to make this point very clearly. I felt like making a gesture, which she never asked for. And that is of actually getting married properly and even wearing a wedding ring to go against my own ideology, against my very nature, against everything I ever believed in. It was my choice. It was my idea. And I'm still wearing it to demonstrate how important that relationship was to me. So sometimes, you know, we get really stuck up our own ideologies and beliefs and, uh, and faith and all that. And I wanted to demonstrate that I am capable of, you know, I wanted to, to send a message to her that, look, I'm going to go against the grain of my own ideology in order to show to you how important this relationship is to me. And, you know, also that I am perfectly capable of not taking myself too seriously. Well, they do say that you don't have principles until they cost you something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> you certainly have done there. Um, going back to techno-feudalism, because you've already described that we can use cloud capital against itself. Mm -hmm. But how can we when we are blinded by the shiny things? when we are taught that the value of us is in what we own, not in who we are? Well, that has been a problem right from the beginning of capitalism, right? The fetishization of commodities and the alienation of people from their own work, from their own intellect, from their own inner talents and strengths. This is not new today. No. What is new today is the algorithms that have been primed to get us addicted to particular visions, to particular behavior modification. The only antidote to that is collective thinking, dialogue, collective action, doing things together. Only through doing things together democratically, not in an authoritarian way, in response to real needs and in response, in reaction 
to real injustices, to crushing inequalities and to crushing injustices, can we find within us the humanity that commodification has taken away from us? Solidarity during disasters. Solidarity against people who are being evicted from their homes. Solidarity towards workers who are about to lose their jobs. Solidarity in the form of supporting the National Health Service against its enemies. Those are the collective endeavors that allow us to return to our individuality, to reclaim our personhood. Art, music, again, all these are collective endeavors that allow individuals to rise up as persons. Think of it in terms of a band. What is a band? It's a collection of people, individuals, each one of them a virtuoso, but each one of them unable to produce that which the collectivity, the band, can create. What is art? A good artist can never make a piece of art for instrumental purposes. If you make it in order to make money, if you make it in order to gain glory, it means you're not a good artist. The only way of being a good artist is to do it because you have no alternative, that if you don't produce that artwork, you will die. If you don't write your poetry, you will die. If you're trying to write poetry in order to cash it in, then your poem is never going to be good. If you yeah. write great poetry because you have no alternative, then you may sell it very dearly, but that's a repercussion. It can never be the objective of good art. So art, collectivity, solidarity, these are the only roads, avenues that are open to us in order to realize our true talents and the, the only road to happiness, really, to eudaimonia, as the ancients used to say, to a successful life. You might like Quincy Jones's quote, which is that when you start talking about money, God leaves the room. <laughs> and whether you are a God-fearing person or not, you understand the sentiment. In I it. understand that. But you know, the ancient Athenians, I think, had it put down. They were brilliant in this. They used to say that money is fantastic to have and horrific to try to get. Hmm. Are you, and it's a question I often ask, are you at heart optimistic? I'm chirpy in a way that annoys people around me. <laughs> but I'm not optimistic because optimism is a very poor cousin of hope, degenerate version of hope. Optimism is for idiots because there's no empirical evidence that things are going to turn out well. None. But hope is like faith. It's something that you've got to have inside of you if you're going to lead the good life until you die. So I make this distinction between optimism and hope. I'm pessimistic and forever hopeful. I always feel that pessimism is, is a luxury for those who are not directly impacted. No, I think that, look, if you ask me, do I think that, for instance, uh, we are going to avert climate catastrophe? Honestly, I don't think we will. I don't think we have it in us oh. as a society. As a, as a species. Look, and look, Greece knows more than well, most. Not just Greece, every, yeah. everywhere, everywhere. Mm. I mean, look at Libya. Look, you know, yes. 12,000 people drowned in Libya. In Durna, yeah. I mean, you only have to state that to realize what's going on. That has never happened before. So I don't think we will succeed. But that doesn't mean that we should stop trying. So hope is what drives me to prove myself wrong, to be pessimistic. If, in order to counter polarization on the left and the right, the way forward politically is through a centrist way of looking at it. But then, as you pointed out earlier on in our I conversation, don't agree with that. you don't? No. No. 
I don't believe in a special... So how do you avoid polarization of the left and the right if we don't find a center path whereby we can find a logical way through our problems? I, I think the right must be annihilated. The right should be annihilated? Absolutely. Not the individual. So that's polarization in itself. Listen, I mean, that's an incredibly polarizing thing to say. No, 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 not at all. You see, by definition, it is. Look, <laughs> I grew up in a dictatorship. I also grew up, as I said before, with the left have dictatorships. Very, as you're of aware. course. I would have been. In, that's what my father yes, said. Yes, exactly. If, if we were in the Soviet Union, right. I would have been in the Gulag, right? And the, those who are right wing now would be in the Politburo. No doubt about that, because it's a question of whether you, you know you are prepared to roll with the authoritarians. The point I'm making about dictatorship is, you know, I grew up understanding the tortures, but I believe that torture should be banned. The right is the equivalent of torturing the majority, not the rightists. Um, some I have better friends in the Tory Party than I have in the Labour Party, by the way, <laughs> which uh, will surprise many people. <laughs> yes, but what is the right for me? It is the authoritarianism of capital. It means that the majority are never in control of their lives. It's the opposite of democracy. I think that must end. So right-wing ideas are not consistent with humanity. They are not consistent with democracy. There can be no such thing as a capitalist or techno-feudal democracy. This is a contradiction. It's like saying that you can have a dictatorship, which is actually nice, a nice dictatorship. So for me, it's not a question of finding a middle ground between right and left. For me, it's a question of empowering persons to have more choices about their partners, about their projects, to find their talents. That can never happen under techno-feudalism. That can never happen under capitalism. So rightist ideology, you know, Thatcherism, is all about preventing the vast majority of people from being free and from attaining their talents. That can never be negotiated with from a left-wing perspective. I feel as though we have set ourselves on course for another hour-long conversation that sadly we are not allowed to have. But my gosh, Yanis, what a fascinating man you are. Whether you agree with what you say or not, you are a deeply fascinating man and should be listened to again, whether you agree with your sentiments or not. Thank you so much for being part of the Penguin Podcast. uh, A fun discussion. Indeed. And thank you for listening wherever you are. Now, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or this wonderful book called Techno Feudalism, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts where you'll find compelling conversations with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. Dip in and see what you find. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 